0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at CandeoChurch.com. All right. Well, good morning. Good to be with you all. Thanks for joining us here in person or online. Uh, If it's your first time here at Candeo, welcome. We're super happy to have you. If it's your first time back, Since all the coronavirus, welcome back for the first time since then. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Zechariah this morning. It's continuing on in our Minor Prophets series. Table of Contents is your big friend during this series is what I found. So uh, let me start out and open with this scenario. So let's just say in a month from now, we all find out, Cedar Falls finds out that the President of the United States is coming to visit. He's heard of the glory that is Cedar Falls, which it is glorious and beautiful, and I love it. Uh, and he's heard of it, and he's coming to visit in a month. He's coming to check it out, see our amazing Fiber Network internet, which is also awesome. He wants to know about it. He has a speech like prepared, everything. He's coming. Now, two weeks before his scheduled visit happens, you receive a letter in the mail. So you get home, you check your mailbox, you find a letter in there, and this thing looks like the most official letter you've ever seen in your life. So you open it, you pull it out, it's of course just incredible stationery, beautiful stationery, and it's a handwritten note. And on this handwritten note is, first it's addressed to you, so your name is like Dear You, not you, but your name. Uh, Dear You. And you read this. He says, I'm super eager for my visit to Cedar Falls. I can't wait. I've heard so much of the city. I want to be there. Uh, In fact, I've not only heard so much about your city, but I've heard so much about you. I've heard so much about you and what you have done for your community. And I want to meet you. Though my itinerary is super full, I'm going to carve out an hour of my visit to have a private meeting just with you. A personal one-on-one meeting, no cameras, no journalist, no even secret service, just me and you. I want to get to know you. Sincerely, Mr. President. Like, what is your reaction in that moment when you read this handwritten note from the President of the United States that he wants to have a meeting with you? It's like, first off, is this a prank? Like, Where's the like cameras, the hidden cameras that like now jump out? Like, no, it's not a prank. It, you verify it. This is the real deal. You are going to have a meeting with the president of the United States two weeks from that day. How do you react? What changes about your life in the next two weeks? You're for sure not speeding. Like, I'm not getting any tickets. I'm only eating salad. Like, I'm going to look amazing for my interaction with the president. Like, it changes everything. Like, imagine how you react in that moment as you are anticipating a personal sit-down one-on-one meeting with the president of the United States. Like, I don't care what you think about him. I don't care how cool and collective of a person you are. That reality, getting a letter like that, the weight of it would change everything about your life for the next two weeks. You'd obsess about this question, am I ready? Am I ready to meet the president? Like, you'd be preparing lists of questions. You'd be doing research. Make sure you're informed on the issues. Make sure you're informed on current events. You'd probably try to figure out at least some way to thank him like that, that feels like appropriate and worthy of the moment. None of us... Get a letter like that and respond like this. Oh, cool. That's nice. Nobody responds like that. You don't respond with indifference to a letter that tells you that you are going to meet completely by yourself with the president of the United States for one hour. You don't respond with indifference. It completely changes everything about how you would live, think, and behave for the next two weeks in anticipation to meet the president. Here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that all of us have received a similar message, but unlike the kind of visceral emotion we feel when we think about meeting with the president, most of us live our day-to-day lives with this indifference towards this message. Some of us have you know, rejected it on an intellectual level, but most of us have received a message that is way more overwhelming, way more daunting, way more shocking, way more weighty And we have lived our day-to-day lives with indifference towards this message. In this book of Zechariah, one way to look at it this morning is as a letter, a handwritten letter on beautiful stationery that is written, and in it we'll find a message, and the message is this. You will meet God. You'll meet God. You will meet the king of the universe for a personal one-on-one meeting with no cameras, journalists, just you and him. You will meet God, the king of the universe. That is one way to look at Zechariah. And that is the message that we're going to see today. And the question that we are going to find in this book is, are you ready to meet the king? Are you ready to meet the king of the universe? This, This meeting is coming. Are you ready to meet the king? And if so, is the anticipation of that meeting completely transforming how you're living today? Because if the anticipation of meeting one on one with the president would completely change how you live, think, behave, the anticipation of meeting with the king of the universe should completely reshape how we live, think, behave. Everything about our life should be shaped by that future coming meeting. So Zechariah is gonna show us this reality that we are gonna meet the king. There is coming a day when we are going to meet the king. And the question that we'll wrestle with is are you ready? And in the opening paragraph of Zechariah, we'll see how we prepare. It's it's the command right at the beginning that is going to give us the key to how to prepare for this meeting, and it's this return to God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to ask this question, are you ready to meet the king? Part one, if you want to be ready, then return to God. And then part two, if you've returned to God, are you then ready? Pretty simple. Are you ready to meet the king? If so, return to God. If you want to be ready, return to God. And if you do return to God, then are you therefore ready? Now, Zechariah, the book, we're going to do the whole thing this morning, all 14 chapters. I think I'm reading from almost every chapter at one point or another. So it's going to be a little crazy. And Zechariah is a wild roller coaster of a book. If you were to read it straight through, it's not linear. It's just all over the place. It starts with these eight nighttime visions. It follow, it's followed by some commands. And then part two of the book are these future prophecies that's difficult to kind of figure out if they're for the people in Zechariah's day. Or are they for other people? Or are they for us? So uh, instead of what you'd maybe think that we'd work through just chapter by chapter chronologically, we're going to look and trace these themes of the king who's coming and how to return to him throughout the whole book. So we're going to be all over the place. I'm going to try to keep us on track of, are you ready to meet the king? If so, or if you want to be returned to him, and if you return to him, are you then ready? So let's start with that. If you want to be ready with the king, return to him. So open up to Zechariah 1 to see this initial command, return to me. So Zechariah 1, 1 through 6 starts this way. Says this In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Idu. The Lord was extremely angry with your ancestors. So tell the people, this is what the Lord of armies says, return to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I'll return to you, says the Lord of armies. Do not be like your ancestors. The earlier prophets proclaimed to them, this is what the Lord of armies says, turn from your evil ways and your evil deeds, but they did not listen or pay attention to me. This is the Lord's declaration. Where are your ancestors now? And do the prophets live forever? But didn't my words and my statues that I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? So the people repented and said, as the Lord of armies decided to deal with us, For our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. All right, part one of this sermon, as we consider this question, are you ready to meet the king, is this. If you want to be ready, return to God. It's the opening command in the book, and it's the command that drives the entire 14-chapter book. Return to me, return to God. If you want to be ready for my coming, for the king's coming, return to him. So what does it mean to return to him? Well, the book is going to give us some examples and some clues of what it means to return to him. And ultimately, it means to reject evil and to pursue faithful living. So right here in that opening passage, as he's telling them to return to me, he says, don't be like your ancestors who, who want it turned from evil ways, who, who want it turned from their evil deeds, but instead were, were, were uh, punished for not doing that. Don't do that. Reject evil. But then throughout the book, we're going to see example after example of what returning to God looks like. In 3.7, he says uh, to Joshua, follow my ways and keep my mandates. In seven nine, he says, the Lord of armies says this, make fair decisions, show faithful love and compassion to one another. Don't oppress the widow or the fatherless, the resident alien or the poor. Don't plot evil in your hearts against one another. Live in this, in this way that is uh, serving others, that's making fair decisions. In 8.16, he says, these are the things you must do. Speak truth to one another. Make true and sound decisions within your city gates. Don't plot evil in your hearts against your neighbor and don't love perjury for I hate all of this. So in simple terms, to return to God means to reject evil and to pursue integrity, to pursue walking faithfully to God's commands, to love and to worship God, not to just obey like externally, but out of a heart that loves and adores and worships God. That's what it means to return to God. Now, why? Why does God command them to return to him? Well, again, throughout the book of Zechariah, you're going to see these motivators, these reasons that God gives to the people to return to him. And as you go throughout the book, three prominent reasons that they should return to him start to surface. And the three reasons why Zechariah is commanding the people to return to him are these. His judgment, his blessing, and his coming. Why should you return to me? His judgment... His blessing and his coming. So let's work through those three motivators. Why should we return to God? His judgment, his blessing, his coming. So, his judgment. Zechariah is going to give the people, as he's commanding them to return to him, some examples of past judgment and then examples of future judgment, warning of of judgment that could come. So, the past judgment, we already saw one of them. Chapter one, he says, "Uh, Look at your ancestors. How are they doing? They rejected me, they went turned from their evil ways. How are they doing? Didn't my words and commands overtake them? So he uses their ancestors in chapter one as an example to see the judgment. Later in in this first vision, he talks about this 70-year exile that their ancestors experienced. Then later in 7-Eleven, he talks about their ancestors again refusing to to humble their hearts before God as they're receiving these commands, instead hardening their hearts and turning their shoulder against God and God bringing judgment against them. So that's some past examples. But then he also gives them future warning of judgment that could come. Now here, like I said, Zechariah, if you read it straight through, it You'd get lost a little bit. I got lost several times. I needed some really smart people to help me unpack it. Because in this future warning, there are going to be some warnings that are near. Near, as in warnings for what they could experience in their lifetime. But then there's going to be some warnings that are distant. Uh, Distant in the sense of maybe the end times or just future that they won't experience. So here's some of the examples that he gives them of the near judgment that they could experience. So Zechariah has this first nighttime vision and God says, I'm fiercely angry with the nations that are at ease. So there's these nations that are oppressing others that are filled with evil and they're living at peace as if everything's cool and God's like, I'm gonna bring judgment on them. Then you get another vision, the sixth vision and you get this crazy, massive scroll, like one of those things that you'd unroll, just but huge. I mean, crazy dimensions just flying. Again, your dreams like... Are probably not quite as bizarre as his dreams, but they were bizarre dreams. A flying scroll is flying through the air, and on this scroll is written uh, commands, God's commands, and it's going into houses and judging thieves and liars. And funny enough, when my dad used to tell us these stories, I always heard for the longest time a flying squirrel. So I just heard a massive, giant flying squirrel that was going into houses judging thieves and liars. Watch out for the squirrel people. (laughs) It was crazy. Finally found out it was a scroll, not a squirrel. Annunciation is important. Then chapter 9, you get this pronouncement against uh, the nations surrounding Israel. In chapters 10 and 11, God turns to the leaders of Israel and says, You corrupt shepherds. Those are some of the near examples of judgment that's coming. But then Zechariah shifts and talks about this distant aspect of the judgment that's coming. And in particular, the end times. How will all of history culminate and end? And how will God's judgment be seen in the end? And this is predominantly found in chapters 13 and 14. And what you find are some pretty horrific details. A pretty horrible scene. Now before we take a look at it, I know that the wrath of God, the judgment of God for some of you, is the biggest hurdle for you accepting Christianity. How could we have a God that would uh, consign some people to eternal judgment in hell? That that is the concept that above anything else is the thing that's keeping you from Christianity. And I get it. That is a very challenging concept to consider. That there is a God that that is a God of judgment and wrath for wickedness. That is very difficult. And the objections are like, man, why doesn't God just accept everybody regardless and just love everyone? Well, if God is not a God of judgment, then consider this. For every injustice that has ever happened in our world, there will never be a full and final accounting for that. So think of the scenario like this, because if that's the case, then God could actually not be loving, which you're like, wait, how does that work? Well, last night, Isla and Jack, my daughter and son gave me a great example. Isla is a sweetheart. She's two and a half, and she has this beautiful pink lanyard that carries some things, and she loves it, and she wears it and has a little clip thing that she, you know, clips around her neck and wears. She wears that all the time. Jack, though he is uh, one, is pretty mischievous and already knows how to get under her skin, and I love it, and I think it's hilarious. So I'm watching this. Jack, he can't crawl, and he can't walk, so he scoots on his butt. So he's scooting over to Isla last night, sneaks up behind her, and as Isla was playing with something else, he sneaks up behind her and grabs her lanyard and whips it off. And again, he can't crawl or walk, so then he scoots as fast as he can away, trying to get away from her. And he has this huge smile on his face because he knows that he just really got under her skin, which she burst into like screaming like, dad, 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 Jack took my lanyard or whatever she says. My, I think she calls it her pink necklace or something. And she is crying out for me to enter into this, this scenario, to bring the fatherly justice that only I can bring because we've trained her. If you hit him, you know, that's bad. Don't do that, Isla. Come get us. But imagine what would happen if as she's crying out, dad, dad, Jack took my pink necklace, if I looked at her and I said, you know what, I kind of just accept whatever happens and I don't really hold people or hold Jack accountable for what he does, I'm not going to be a dad of judgment, so I'm not going to enter into this. What would she accuse me of? Now, if she said this, I have the most incredible two-and-a-half-year-old. If she said, Dad, you are not a dad of justice, and you, therefore, do not love me. You know, that would be amazing. We should take her on a game show. But that's what her tears would communicate. Dad, if you loved me enough, you would enter in and take up my cause. I understand that a God of wrath and judgment is a very challenging concept for us to understand. But if God is not a God of judgment, then there is no final vindication for those of us who have faced injustices. We are very aware of injustices in our world right now. And if there is not a God who holds people accountable for their wickedness, then there is no final vindication for the injustices that people have faced. And anyone, therefore, who has faced injustice in this world would look at God and say, you don't love me. In order for God to be loving, he has to be just. So what is this this final scene that Zechariah depicts? Like I said, it is honestly horrible. Uh, In chapter 13, at one point, he describes this as two-thirds of the land dying. Two-thirds of humanity dying. Uh, In chapter 14, you get a scene of just this grotesque battle that happens uh, where nations are surrounding Jerusalem, and those who are in the city are facing horrible atrocities of war. Those who are outside of the city, who are attacking the city, God sends a plague, and the description is, is, is as if people are disintegrating where they stand. It's a horrible scene of God's judgment against wickedness. Now, Christians over the years have, have understood these, interpreted these events differently. But what all Christians agree on is that Christ is coming back and there will be a final judgment. Those in Christ to eternal life and those not in Christ to eternal judgment in hell. And this should motivate us, Zechariah claims, to return to God to not be cavalier about our sin, to not be cavalier about our indifference to the existence of God, but to return to him. So not only his judgment, but his blessing should motivate us to return to God. So he again gives examples throughout the whole book of ways that God blesses his people for living in faithfulness to him. So right where we saw the command, return to me, and then the promise right away, and I will return to you. God will be with those who return to him. Then you see, again, in the first vision, God's saying, My cities will again overflow with prosperity. I will comfort Zion as I choose Jerusalem. Then you get this long passage in 8.12, and I'll read a, a good chunk of it. It says, For those who sow in peace, the vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. The skies will yield their due. I will give the remnant of these people all these as an, an inheritance. There's just this abundance as people are faithfully returning to God. And he says, Don't be afraid. Let your hands be strong. Uh, I, I, I will resolve again to, to, to care for you. And then he gives them the command, speak truth to one another. He's saying, as you faithfully return to me, I will will bring blessing in my blessing. Then in 10, 6-8, he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and deliver the house of Joseph. I'll restore them because I have compassion on them. Again, these are examples that are near. This is a near aspect of his blessing for the people that are, are hearing this from Zechariah. But then again, there's a distant aspect to his blessing. Where he says in the midst of this horrific battle in chapter 14, that on that day... In verse 8, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. In the midst of this this chaotic scene, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of it towards the east, half of it towards the west in summer and winter. And on that day, the Lord will become king over the whole earth. And then he goes on to say, Jerusalem will dwell in security. So you have this this promise, this, this reason to return to him is because of his blessing. He's a God who blesses as we walk faithfully with him. Return to him. Those who walk against his commands consequences rejection those who walk in his ways in his commands blessing now if you've been around candeo or christianity for a while you're starting to maybe have a radar go off of like man okay i thought we were saved by grace alone i thought that we can't do anything to make god love us more or love us less but i'm hearing like this this judgment for wrong blessing for good what's going on here Yes, absolutely, we are saved by grace and grace alone, and there is nothing that we could ever do to make God love us more and love or love us less. And yet, we are absolutely able and capable of bringing more pleasure or more displeasure to God. That does bring more blessing or more consequence. Consider this again. My kids, I have an unconditional love for my kids as their father. Like, Natalie and I have gotten this habit where we look at our kids at night as they're sleeping. And regardless of what happened during the day, it's just you look at this kid and you're filled with love and delight as they're just sleeping there. And you're like, ah, I love him. I love her. And that, like, Zephaniah 3.17 picture of God who sings over us and delights in us, that's true. And yet, while that is true, I can simultaneously be very displeased at Isla and bring consequence into her life. And though that's true, I can also simultaneously have times that I feel the blessing of our relationship more. That brings joy and life and delight. Listen, we cannot do anything if we are in Christ to lose or have our security as God's children threatened. And yet, we can have times where we are are walking in step with God's commands that brings blessing or we can have at times where we're walking out of step with God's commands that brings consequences. It is the way that God has designed this world. It is absolutely true. If you consistently ignore the commands of God for your life, in general, your life will not be as good. If you are constantly having like, infidelity problems, there is consequence to that. The, the, the brokenness that results from that if you are consistently having fidelity and faithfulness to your spouse, there's blessing that comes to that. That's how God has designed his world. Though we can't do anything to lose our status as God's children, we can, in fact, experience more blessing or more consequence because of our behavior. So those are the first two reasons. What's the third? He is coming. All throughout Zechariah, you will see over and over again this this reality that God is coming. And again... Same with judgment and blessing. There's a near promise of this and a distant promise of this. For the people in Zechariah's day, 520 BC, Zechariah is a peer with Haggai. They're returning from exile. Haggai and Zechariah's ministry was to encourage them to rebuild the temple. So all throughout Zechariah, you're going to see God's desire and promise that he's going to dwell with his people again. The first vision in 116, he says, I've returned to Jerusalem and my house will be rebuilt. The third vision in 210, daughters Zion shout for joy and be glad, for I'm coming to dwell with you. 8.3, the Lord says, I'll return to Zion and live in Jerusalem. So these people are getting all these promises of, of the, the, tr- the truth that God is coming. And that should motivate them, there, the, therefore, to return to him. But it's also true in this distant aspect that Zechariah is going to bring to mind for us. He says in 9.9, where he promises for the Messiah to come, that uh, the king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, humble, riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of the donkey. He says in 14.1, looking to that day of, of that battle and of the restoration, he says, Look, a day belonging to the Lord is coming when the plunder taken from you will be divided in your presence. And then he says again in fourteen nine, on that day, the Lord will become king. The Lord, the king is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready to meet him? For them, that was true. For us, that is true. In light of his judgment, in light of his blessing, in light of his coming, are you ready to meet the king? Now, if we've heard those reasons and we've decided, yes, I do want to return to God, I do want to be ready I do want to live faithfully in light of the coming king, in light of the reality that I'm going to meet him. Part two, are we then ready to meet the king? If I return, am I then ready to meet the king? And the way Zechariah is going to answer that is by giving us a story of a person in this time who does, in fact, meet with the king. So turn to Zechariah 3. This is where we're going to end today. And think back to that presidential analogy. Instead, let's say, of you receiving a personal note from the president saying he wants to meet with you, the president tells all of Cedar Falls, pick one person for me to meet with for an hour. You all pick one person that you think I should know from Cedar Falls. If I know anybody from Cedar Falls, who is it? And so we get together and we're trying to think of, man, who would be the right person to put before the president? Is it the mayor? Is it the president of the university? Is it some philanthropist who's done so much for our community? Is it a successful businessman or businesswoman? That essentially is how this story begins in Zechariah 3.1. It's as if all the Israelites came together and said, man, who is it among us that given their devotion to God, given their sacrifice for him, given their service to the Lord, could possibly be worthy to stand in his presence. It's like, oh, Joshua, the high priest. Surely he would be the guy. Surely he'd be the guy. So here's how Zechariah 3.1 starts. It says, Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. So Joshua goes into the temple. And in the temple there's layers, and in the inner layer is the presence of God. And Joshua goes in. And to give some context, this actually was an annual occurrence. It was called the Day of Atonement, and the high priest once a year would go into the inner sanctuary of the temple to represent the people, to to meet with God, and, and to do some ceremonial sacrifices and things like that. But not only would this person have to be someone who is devoted to God, who would have to serve God, but they would also have to go through this extremely complex and laborious purification process leading up to it. With all these like ritual bathings and cleansings and and the way they clean the robes and prepare them. And it was weeks that they would prepare for this moment where they would step into the presence of God. So this is what Joshua the high priest has gone through. A life of devotion to the Lord and all of this ceremonial cleansing before he enters in. And it's as if Joshua steps through the curtain and this is what he experiences. So verse 1 again, Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan, standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now here's why Satan was accusing Joshua before God. Verse 3, Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. It's like, what? It's like, I go through all that process, step in, and here's where I'm at. Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes before the angel, head to toe in complete filth. In the presence of God, Joshua, the high priest, is covered head to toe in complete filth. What is going on? Why? It's because the stain of sin in Joshua's life was too deep for a life of devotion, a life of service, a ceremonial purification process to get rid of. The stain of sin was too deep. And when he was in the presence of God, it was revealed that compared to the holiness of God, Joshua in his sin was still covered head to toe in his filth. Here's the deal. When we compare ourselves to other people of how worthy am I for God compared to that person, we could come away potentially feeling pretty good about ourselves. But when our frame of reference shifts from how good am I compared to other people to how good am I compared to the perfect holiness of God, all of us realize that there is an insignificant difference between my worthiness to meet with God and your worthiness to meet with God. It's as if two people are rolling around in the mud and you both get up and you're like, hey dude, I'm cleaner than you because my elbow doesn't have any mud on it and yours does. It's like, There's an insignificant difference between my cleanliness and your cleanliness. Like, no restaurant's letting either of us come in like this. Like, it's insignificant. And when Joshua was standing in the presence of God, that was revealed. A man who, if anyone has any chance of being in God's presence, he would be it, is still covered head to toe in filth before him. So this, I think all of us could probably start to get pretty frustrated It's like, Zechariah, we just went through 14 chapters of you saying, return to me, here's the reasons why. And yet, when when we put someone before the king who maybe has a shot, still covered head to toe in filth. How do any of us have any chance to meet the king? How could any of us be ready to meet the king if this is the case? The only way that we could be ready to meet the king is if we are cleansed by God's grace. Look what happens, verse 4. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him. Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. This is seen as Joshua is covered head to toe in filth. God is removing the filth of his sin, the filth of his iniquity, and replacing it with clean robes, a clean turban, a clean garment, so that Joshua could stand in his presence. Totally worthy to be there with the king. To which we might think, man, like, Well, then all that other stuff about being aware of his judgment, his blessing, his coming, like that should motivate us to return to him and live a certain way. Like, is that thrown out if all of us are covered head to toe in filth anyways? Well, look what God says to him. After he cleanses him, he says this in verse 6. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua. This is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. God looks at him after cleansing him and says, now keep my commandments, walk in my ways, keep my mandates, live with faithfulness, not to be clean, but because you have been cleansed, because of the cleansing you have experienced because of my grace, now live in integrity. Listen, those are great motivations and we should be motivated by those things to walk in obedience, his judgment, his blessing and his coming. But the ultimate thing that should motivate us to walk in faithfulness to God is the reality that we have been cleansed by his grace. That we have a king who welcomes us into his presence, not because of what we have done, but because what he has done for us in cleansing us. Now, I think another objection comes up in our minds right here. It's like, hey, I remember about like 15 minutes ago, you talking about if God was going to be just, he has to hold people accountable for sin. Seems like Joshua just got off the hook for his sin. Seems like all that filthy garments of his sinfulness he just got off the hook for. How can God both be just and not let our filth consume us in his presence? He can do it by what he promises in verse 8, 3, 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant, the branch, the branch. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. No idea what that means, but it sounds cool. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and his fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The only way that God could remove the filth of our garments before him is if he took them off of us and put them on his servant, the branch. And on a single day, completely wipe out the iniquity of the land. The only way he could do it is if this branch, the promised king in Zechariah 9.9, who would come in victory and righteousness... If, if the one who was pierced in Zechariah 12, if the one who was struck in Zechariah 13, if the one who would bring in a single day the washing and impurity that Zechariah 13 1 talks about, the only way we could experience that is if this servant, the branch, lost the presence of God on the cross so that we could have it. On the cross, Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I have lost your presence. So that we could have security in entering the presence of the king. The only way the filth of our garments could be removed is if they were placed on Christ. So that we could instead be clothed in his righteousness. So that this day that we're anticipating where we meet the king is not a day that that produces fear or threat. But a day that produces joy and, and delight and completely reshapes everything about our life. Are you ready to meet the king? The ultimate way to be ready is to let God remove the filth of your sin from you and replace it with the robes of righteousness. And as you contemplate that, that that we have a king that would do that on our behalf, let that completely reshape the way you live returning to him daily, to walk in faithfulness, to reject evil, to pursue him in worship and love and delight, all in the anticipation of the day that we get to stand with the king, not covered in the filth of our sinfulness, but covered in the righteousness of his blood. Let's pray. God, we are anticipating a day where we will meet the king. And God, that's going to be an awesome day. Um, It's going to be an awesome day because we'll stand there not in condemnation, but we'll stand there secure. Um, stand there not in the filth of our sin, but stand there in the cleanliness of your righteousness because of Christ. And God, I pray that as that day is coming, as we anticipate it, that it would reshape everything about how we live now. That the anticipation of, of that meeting would would change our priorities, would change uh, how we spend our time, how we change our behavior, how we change how we think. God, I pray that all of that will be a result of how we are centered on the grace that we've received in Christ in anticipation for this day when we meet the King.